up, Mr. Scott. Permission to come aboard, sir. Welcome to Now Playing's Star Trek Retrospective Series. We here at Now Playing will be reviewing all of the previous installments of the Star Trek movie franchise, going at warp speed towards the new J.J. Abrams Star Trek movie coming to theaters May 8, 2009. Bringing you the perspective of a Star Trek novice, a casual Star Trek movie fan, and a former hardcore Trekker, we will be providing spoiler-filled critiques of this long-running movie franchise. Today we're talking about Star Trek, starring Chris Pine, Zachary Quinto, Eric Bana, Bruce Greenwood, Carl Urban, Simon Pegg, John Cho, and directed by J.J. Abrams. Now, those of you who have seen the movie know I left off a big name, and here's where I'm going to go with the spoiler alert. If you have not seen Star Trek yet, thank you for downloading Now Playing, but I highly advise you press stop right now and come back to us after you've seen the movie, because we are going to spoil this thing rotten. You have been warned. Welcome to Now Playing. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing, and with me today are... Stuart in L.A. Arnie, south of Chicago, just waiting to hear Brock complain about Beastie Boys. Am <laughs> <laughs> I, I the only coach. one who's watching this movie, and the Beastie Boys play, and I just go, oh, bleep, Brock's gonna have a field day. <laughs> <laughs> I said to myself, yay, when I saw the movie. Anyway, so uh, clarify for those who are wondering, Leonard Nimoy was the name I left off the cast list, and we'll get to him in in all due time. So, Arnie, do we want to start this off with a plot summary? The movie begins approximately 25 years before the Star Trek we know from television, when a giant Romulan mining vessel comes from over 100 years in the future into the past. Yes, there's time travel again. And attacks a Federation ship, which happens to have on it Captain Kirk's father and mother, his mother about to give birth. Kirk's father proceeds to fight off the Romulan vessel, sacrificing himself, narrowly allowing the other crew members and his wife and son to escape. The Romulan vessel then flies off into obscurity for approximately 25 years. We then flash forward about 15 years and we get to see young Kirk and young Spock having angst. And then we flash forward another 10 years and Kirk is the son son of a bad stepfather leading a rebellious kind of drunken law-breaking life in Iowa when Captain Christopher Pike comes into a bar and recruits him to join Starfleet. Three years after that, he is now Cadet Kirk when all of a sudden a weird space anomaly appears. And of course, the Enterprise is the only ship within range or one of the only ships. So they call all cadets to active duty and the Enterprise flies off. However, the space anomaly reminds Kirk of what his father had encountered 25 years earlier. He warns Captain Pike and sure enough, it is the Romulan vessel again. And they are waiting for another ship which has traveled back through time carrying with it Spock, Leonard Nimoy Spock, the Spock we all know from the future. Meanwhile, Kirk and Spock on the Enterprise aren't getting along very well after Spock tried to get Kirk kicked out of Starfleet for cheating on the Kobayashi Maru. A lot of things happen, but it turns out the bad guy is a Romulan named Nero. In the future, the Romulan planet was completely destroyed. Nero was one of the few surviving Romulans. He held Spock accountable for the death of the Romulan people. He did not mean to travel back in time, but when he found himself 
back in time, he decided he would wreak vengeance. He waited 25 years for old Spock to appear, and then he destroys the planet Vulcan, killing Spock's mother in the process. Uh, a lot of fights ensue, every character has their moment, and eventually Kirk and Spock, young Spock, defeat Nero. Kirk is then promoted directly from cadet to captain, takes command of the Enterprise because Pike is now confined to a wheelchair, and we are left off awaiting the next movie. Okay, that sounds great. I want to have a couple of clarifications right there real quick. First of all, Pike um, promoted him to first officer, so that's why he got the captain's chair at the end of the movie. He was made first officer, but he was still a cadet. He was never a lieutenant. He was never I see. anything I see else. Oh, good. That's an interesting point. Uh, I didn't think of that. I guess uh, we should probably start at the beginning here of with this amazing scene of Kirk's father in that whole ship with Nero's ship. Now, the only thing I was thinking about during this scene was, holy cow, this is cool. It didn't cross my mind until after I saw the movie because they referred to it in the movie. That's not exactly how it went down the first time around with Kirk and his family. And I guess my real question to you before we even start talking about this, maybe it's going to be a running theme throughout your commentary, Artie, is you being a well-versed Star Trek fan, was this movie annoying to you that it went <laughs> up against stuff that you know is established and all that kind of, was it, was it like, did it piss you off? Me? No. But I came in expecting this, and let's keep in mind, I'm an ex-Trekkie, not a current Trekkie. I can see where if I had spent 40 years, because Trek's over 40 years old, if I'd spent 40 years, more than my lifetime, reading every piece of Trek fiction, watching every episode of Trek, and just immersing myself into that lifestyle, how this coming along and what they did, it's a reboot, but it's very weird because most reboots, you just go in and they've started over, right? Like Batman Begins or something. Here, they say, you will watch us as we push the reset button because the Spock from the future is the future we know and in the prequel comic to this movie which I'm going to talk about throughout this podcast it actually has all of the characters we know from the next generation and everything so it's the future we know and now we get to watch as time travel occurs and in all the time travel stories and Trek has had a lot of them especially in the movies the whole point of the time travel is we must set things back the way they were before so we can get back to the future we know and here they go, nope, we're going to a different future now. We are hitting that reset button and forcing you to watch it. I can see to the devout where that would be a very painful experience because it just it wiped everything out. Well, I think it, that was the most brilliant move of all that time travel actually has consequences now in a Star Trek movie. Everything can't be wrapped up in a pretty little bow and it was really for we've talked about time travel a lot on this podcast series. The fact of the matter is our I guess our complaints have come to, to a head. They actually said, yeah, you're right here we go and i think it's really cool in addition to this podcast you know we've been recording the terminator podcast which are going to start next week i'm so tired of talking about time travel and paradoxes <laughs> <laughs> my head hurts can i just say that the second that i realized that it was about time travel i could feel internal organs shift <laughs> in me i literally <laughs> went through something that i i don't i was like Oh, no. <laughs> I so didn't want it to be about that. And I've known these whole times in the past podcast what I've been like, do you really want me to tell you? I knew old oh. Spock went back in time. and I knew Nimoy had a role in this. I didn't even know he was playing Spock. I assumed he would play Spock's grandfather. When I when I saw the trick that they were doing, I, I was not cool with it. But I was really? like, I'll roll with it. Really? Um, because I, I thought you would love it because of the whole consequence thing and on top of that it get, 
it finally uses time travel in a way that makes the rest of the plot and the series now work. It's not just a plot device. It actually is needed to tell the story they want to tell. Did you like that story? <laughs> I, 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 I'm going to put it up front right now. I thought the movie was fine, and I think it's going to have a really awesome sequel, but I'm not... I'm not thrilled with this movie, and I was disappointed. I was surprised, because I thought this movie was going to rock, and I did not think that after it was over. Elaborate, please. What about the movie was disappointing to you? Uh, You know what? It made me feel old, for one thing. I don't need every scene to have a fist fight, and this movie felt very Michael Bay. It was action, action all the time. I thought it was kind of exhausting, and the, the plot, let's go back in time, even though the character did didn't even want to go back in time and have vengeance for something on someone who didn't create the problem. And then that person is going to give Scotty the coordinate. uh, mm. Anyway, we probably need to break it one by one. I had lots of little, it was like dying from a, a thousand little pricks. There wasn't one thing that was wrong. It was 900 that slowly got to me. Okay, let me interject a little bit here, if I may. First of all, I agree with you that I'm watching this movie, and I, unlike Stuart, I did enjoy it. I'll put it out there right now. I think this is the best Trek movie ever. Oh, fight, fight, fight. (laughs) You and I are going to fist fight in a minute, aren't you? And however, I got to say that I'm watching this movie and I'm like, there's something missing here. And what it is, is the characters. It was all action. And I have to wonder if they're going to do a Lord of the Rings like extended DVD or something, because it feels like they had to have filmed some character scenes. I know J.J. Abrams. J.J. Abrams is not Michael Bay. J.J. Abrams doesn't do this stuff. And he's good about characters. And there were some character moments, but it felt like chunks were were missing just like mm-hmm. chunks of that would have been exposition and you know the what George Lucas calls the pointer scene where people are just sitting around talking and they didn't have that but it felt like that was missing to make me connect with these characters more than I was already if I had no nostalgia if I went in a blank slate why would I care about this movie those scenes were missing I agree Arnie it felt to me like this cast wasn't playing against each other they didn't have a relationship with each other They had a relationship with the previous incarnation of their characters, and that's who they were playing off of. And I didn't feel like this was a cohesive team. I didn't feel like it was working together. Like, the whole crux of this movie is built around that Spock and Kirk aren't friends, and are they ever going to be friends? And I didn't feel like they had any time together at all. Okay, I see your points, I guess. I was really happy with each character of the main characters got their scenes, got their moments. They even gave Chekhov something to do, which I thought was great. And they focused on Kirk and Spock and their relationship the most. And I felt when they went down to that, at the end, when the two of them worked together and they were covering each other and learning to trust each other that way, that was the scene where they supposed to have melded. Now, whether that scene worked for you guys or not, I apparently it didn't. I felt it worked for me in that, okay, that's where they bonded together to earn each other's respect and admiration. I see your point about them playing, you know, having the shadows of the other characters looming over them, but there's a certain aspect of it that you have to do. And I I would like to talk about each if we can. I think this is a good time where we should, at this point, look at how these characters compare with their predecessors. I completely agree with you. Well, let me just say, I think that overall, you can tell which actors went back and studied the previous incarnations and which ones didn't. 
And I agree. Pine has said in every interview, I did not watch anything with Shatner intentionally because I don't want to be a parody. And you could tell that Pine was doing his own thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought that was a very strong move for Chris Pine because for him to go up there and do Shatner would be a really bad idea. Shatner is so associated with this role that no one in the world can compare to William Shatner. And take that for a compliment or not, it's up to you. <laughs> I think it's a compliment. The guy is Kirk. So I think in a lot of ways, Chris Pine has the biggest burden of all, of all the actors, to make a believable Captain Kirk. And what I think he did here, he played him younger, he played him with a swagger. He had a lot of elements of a character there. Whether or not it's the Kirk that I know, well, I'm the casual fan. I know the movies and a selected number of shows. I, I don't really think I'm 100% qualified to say he nailed Kirk, but I loved his Captain Kirk. I thought it worked for the movie. I thought it worked for the bravado of Kirk and what Kirk has. I thought of all the, the, the stuff that he did get, and he, if he watched nothing on purpose, that's fine. He got that, that ego. He got that bravado, that way he carries himself. He got, and that ladies' man thing was kind of played up a lot, but that was the only concession, the only kind of humorous thing to it. I thought the Captain Kirk they showed us was great, and if he did go up against Shatner, it had been a huge mistake. Huge. You've got two parts to this, though. You've got the character as he's written, and you've got the character as he's acted. You say about, you know, Kirk and the womanizing, and he gets to bang the Orion slave girl again in this movie, and that's the Kirk as written. Then you've got the Kirk as acted by Pine, and how Pine interprets those lines, and Mm -hmm. they're two separate things. You know, it's like a lot of the lines in this movie, the writers, quite obviously, watched a lot of old Trek. (laughs) But did the actors then portray it? And in the case of Pine, you know, the scene where I was really making my judgment was the Kobayashi Maru. He's just sitting there, and he's not even faking it. And, you know, I'm like, that's not Kirk. Kirk would have faked it. And then I started thinking, and I'm like, you know what? The Kirk from the old series might have played it that way, because he was full of that ego and just self-assurance and all of that. So after the Kobayashi Maru scene, I'm like, all right, I can kind of see it. But in the end, it's a new Kirk. It's a new Star Trek. And go with it or don't. In some cases, yeah, again, we're going to be talking about these other actors who tried to portray it. But Pine, he's not the same Kirk. He's a new Kirk. This is a tough one. I didn't really have trouble with the character as he interpreted it. I don't feel, and it's hard to know at this point, whether it's because of the editing or the performance or the writing or what. I just don't feel like he was very commanding. Like, I didn't feel him mature and grow into the seat. I didn't feel a turning point where I was like, okay, now he is ready to be captain. No, really, all he has is ego. And at the end, you don't see him, you know, grow to trust in the judgment of others at all. It's all from the beginning to the end. I'm right because I'm me. Yeah, the ending shot, he's sitting in the chair and he's acting like it's a lounge. He's got his legs crossed and his, his, like he's slouched. I'm just like, well, that's funny and I can appreciate that. But I don't I feel like this is unearned. Like, I can't believe uh, he's already captain by the end of the first movie. Why did they have to do it that way? I disagree with you both. I think the bar fight scene in the beginning of the movie showed that he had the chutzpah and the smarts to do the job, but he was rebelling against whatever he needed to rebel against for his own personal demons to get rid of it. That was a point of that scene. Then he goes into Starfleet realizing he, he, he can be more and he can be what better than his dad. Then you have the whole Kobayashi Maru thing, which I thought was over the top, but a lot of fun to watch. And then they had that great scene in the middle of the movie when Spock is captain and Kirk is hanging out in the chair and Spock drops that line, get out of the chair. Really funny and lots of fun. So when And I thought that was a really great harbinger for when Kirk does get the chair later on. And I didn't see him slouching in that chair at the end. I saw him in command in that chair at the end shot. I thought that was earned from the previous time he was sitting in the chair 
chair being a jerk in that chair when he wasn't supposed to be in there earlier in the movie. So I completely disagree with both of you on that. Whether or not he deserved to be a captain in this first movie, yeah, I, I might be able to see your point there. Absolutely, he kind of got that all of a sudden. But that's where we want him to be at the end of this movie anyway. It's Captain Kirk. You know, it's, it's who we want to be in that chair. It may be where the next movie needs him to be. But in my summary, I said he was promoted directly from cadet to captain. And I put yes. that in for a reason. Because there's a lot of this movie where it felt too easy. Like the writers took such an easy way out. Kirk, I didn't put in the summary, wasn't even supposed to be on the Enterprise. Because of the Kobayashi Maru, he was suspended. And McCoy smuggles him aboard. He's not even supposed to be there. And Pike suddenly goes, you are now first officer. Why? You know. That was ridiculous. It was. <laughs> it was stupid. And then it was. later, I could see him getting promoted from cadet to lieutenant. Maybe skip that whole ensign rank thing. But to go from cadet to captain, yes, he saved Earth, yeah, good, I get it, but to, cadet to captain it, of the flagship vessel of the fleet, it's 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 where you have to put him for the next movie, but that doesn't mean I have to like it. Okay. Yeah, I'm I'm in agreement with uh, that. It's, it's like, you're right, I don't want to watch episodes and episodes of Kirk training and learning the ropes, but at the same time, I feel like it has to be earned, and this character, I mean, what you're talking about where he decides to stop being a ball brawler and join Starfleet is literally a three-minute scene. There's okay. not really a whole lot of transition there. Yeah, but, and, okay. And I just okay. felt like a lot of it was, it is the writing. It's like, we have to make this fast. And I felt like it was written for people younger with attention spans that don't want to hear talk, 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 blah, 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 Trek. And so they just put it on, you know, uh, Red Bull. And I'm just like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't need this movie to be on Red Bull. I'm not on Red Bull. And so it was just tough for me. So uh, Chris Pine, I don't know. I felt like, yeah, it was a good take on it. I kind of liked what he was doing, but I just, he wasn't my captain by the end of it. One of the things that just bugged me throughout the whole movie is we see Kirk as a cadet and Uhura as a cadet and Spock as whatever he was. He, I'm not quite <laughs> sure. But then you see like Lieutenant Sulu and all that. And I'm like, how in the hell did Kirk, you know, become captain and all these guys stay the same? Mm -hmm. And it, it bugged me. Kirk showed amazing initiative that was controversial with the Kobayashi Maru. He was ahead of his class in the cadet school. He was being watched by all these people because he had that X factor that a lot of other captains didn't have. Pike saw it in him up front, which is why he recruited him or wanted him to enlist in Starfleet. Kirk had all eyeballs on him because he was something special. There was something Where there. are you getting this? Because it isn't in the movie. Actually, you're wrong. It's actually in the movie because Kirk it's proves in that three time minutes again, scene, <laughs> that he bits out information that everyone else should have that he has it on the tip of his tongue. He actually, he's the guy who knows that Uhura has the information to help people out and all these things. Okay, but that does not mean all the eyes of Starfleet are on him. I Pike was, though. Pike very Pike much was, was, yes. was nurturing him, and I get that he took a risk by making him first officer because he, he saw this him. thing yes. in him. And that's one of the scenes that I think should be, you know, restored on the DVD if it was ever actually made is a scene explaining why. And yeah. the rest of the, and you said before, the rest of the crew, you know, Sulu's there. How come he doesn't get shafted? Well, I think in the movie, especially with this drill scene with Sulu, when Kirk jumps off the drill to save that man, and then Kirk proves to the crew, the main crew members that we call the main crew people, each and every one, that he deserves the chair in their minds. I don't see them piss getting pissed off. They were overlooked because they all saw in this whole movie, in the events of this movie, that this guy is able to do things that we can't do, and he's able to put himself on the line for 
us. He put himself in the line of fire. And you know what? That's great for a Navy SEAL. That's not what you want in a captain. I mm-hmm. think it breeds leadership. I think it breeds respect. I think if you have- I disagree. I think a captain it has to be a leader, not an action hero. If you look at, you know, a captain has to command the ship. He sends the others down there to be the action hero. It's Picard versus Kirk. It's always that debate. It's I'm a Picard guy. Like, yeah, you just act commanding. You send the first officer down to deal with the bull. Jumping off of a mine does not engender leadership. In fact, it makes me question it because he had no clue how the hell he was going to get out of there once the parachute went. Mm -hmm. I was under the impression the plan was as soon as the drill was turned off, the transporter beam would work. And he was calling for them, the transporter beam, them back up. So Kirk was trusting in the people on the ship to get them on the transporter beam off. That was the thought process there. It's quite clear in this movie, transporters don't work unless you're standing still. (laughs) All right. I think we're in disagreement about this one. Yes. And I don't think we're going to bridge that troubled water. Next up, Spock. Spock. Now, Spock is interesting to me because I think he had probably the biggest expectations of is, he, you know, he has to do Vulcan, right? We have to know he has to do Vulcan. Did he pull it off convincingly? And was he a good Spock? I'd like to hear what you guys have to say about this, considering what you said about Kirk. <laughs> I, I, I'll, I'll hop in first because I want to reference what we said in some previous podcasts about how Kirstie Alley was and mm-hmm. Robin Curtis was as a Vulcan. Is right. in, in the research for this, I, I learned that whole thing about the director saying that Spock has to be kind of ironic and deliver his lines in that way in mm-hmm. order to pull it off. And I've been watching some old Trek episodes. And this is something Nimoy did from the very beginning. This is, again, in my opinion, a different Spock. This is a very emotional, pissed off Spock. And he's pissed off long before his planet goes boom and his mommy dies. He's mm-hmm. pissed from the beginning. And, you know, he was closer to Spock than I think Pine was to Kirk. But I don't think he captured any of Spock's humor, which in the movies became his identifiable trait. And when you see the scene of Nimoy versus Quinto, you Mm -hmm. see where the big gap lies is that Quinto, you know, the only joke he told the whole movie was get out of the chair. And Spock was known for his dry wit in times of crisis. Unintentional humor, but it was humorous to the audience. I don't know. I didn't have a, I didn't have a strong feeling for this Spock. He certainly looks the part. I mean, uh, he's the one that everyone goes, wow, they really got a good Spock. It's, I mean, it's waxwork. I mean, it's scary. Yeah. How much he was the first one cast. Like. He was the first one uh, cast because he looked like He him. was yeah. cast when he was born. It was like, yeah. oh, when we make that next Star Trek, <laughs> it's him. Yeah. <laughs> so... I, I mean, I get that. He's instantly spot to to you physically. But I I don't know. He spends a large part of the movie being an antagonistic figure to Kirk. And we're much more prone to, like, Kirk, the rebel, tough guy, won't listen to the rules than we are to... I mean, he designed the Kobayashi Maru. That's a new thing, right? Yeah, it's new. That was a new take on it. That Like, he's actually working with Starfleet designing the test. He's actually superior than I, I didn't you're right I didn't understand his rank he wasn't science officer he wasn't I, he was, I'm not sure he was the first officer to Pike okay was he yes I didn't get that well that's what I understood to be he was first officer to Pike and then he um, became captain and then obviously the whole thing with him getting the throne from captainship and then but if he was first officer to Pike why is he assigning cadets to the ship and knows how yes. good Uhura was with her tongue and all that it felt like he had already been through Starfleet and was retired to me I'm like he this was a Starfleet. You do when I hear you're you done with your five-year tour. Oh. 
It's a very good point, Arnie. It's a very good point. I thought he was acting captain when Pike went down, and I guess it's because I assumed, I guess, he was a first officer. But you're right. He, if he's assigning people to different ships, he has more power, and he's Starfleet administration. Interesting. I thought his take on Spock was okay. I thought it was a much more emotional Spock, as you said. I do think he missed that ironic humor we talked about earlier, but there were times when he was very much Spock. But to say, when that one scene against Nimoy, it's almost unfair. Nimoy's had the character for, what, 40, 45 years, however long it's been. But I can see this guy growing in the role. I really do wish he got it more. He got some of it, but he didn't get all of it. And I watch Heroes, and I it's hard for me to, sometimes his lines, he said in this movie, very much were like his characterization of his character on Heroes, Siler. But, you know, when you have a same actor, you're going to have some of those same kind of things, whether or not, you know, it takes a good actor to make you not care about those kind of things. Like Christopher Walken has a way of talking, and no matter what role he's in, you kind of love it, you know, same kind of stuff. But I'm on the fence with him. I thought he was okay. I thought he could have benefited from what Carl Urban did, did with Bones. You mentioned Heroes. I've watched all three or four years of Heroes, or however much it is. One of my big problems with Quinto being Spock is every time I see Quinto in an interview, I get Siler off of him, and I'm like, this dude's creeping me out. (laughs) You know, he was on uh, Jimmy Fallon. I'm like, Jimmy, run! You know, I mean, he's a creepy-looking person, and they play that up on Heroes. And I, to his credit, I didn't think Siler once throughout Star Trek. Not once. And so I disagree with you on the, he said some lines like Siler. By the time I was there, I was so far past it. It, It's the haircut, it's the ears, Mm -hmm. everything. They they can't get rid of that stubble. My wife said that he probably has a full-grown beard by, like, noon. But other than that, (laughs) you know, I did not think Siler. The one scene in particular, it was when he turned down the school on Vulcan to go to Starfleet, when he was being all like, well, your record is clean then. Um, Whatever that line was, um, was when I heard it the first time. But anyway... Carl Urban did with with Bones, with McCoy, what Ewan McGregor did for Obi-Wan Kenobi. And it was a breath of fresh air. It came out of the blue. And boy, was his opening scene a load of fun. I think what he did was when he played with the voice and the cadence of McCoy's voice, it made you believe he was McCoy instantly. So when he said the -the over-the-top lines throughout the movie that you have to have Bones say, or everyone thinks Bones says all the time, damn it, Jim, I'm a doctor, it totally works because he used the cadence of the voice early on. Whether or not his physicality, all that kind of thing, is, I, I think, you know, he's a mismatch. He's a little broader and bigger than DeForest Kelly, but who cares? The guy sounded like McCoy, and he emanated McCoy, and I thought he did the best job of an homage, but also starting to make his own character with McCoy. I agree completely. I'm glad he studied those cadences, because you can't deliver the line, time travel? I'm a doctor, not a physicist, damn it! And <laughs> not have that, you know, going for him. Can I just say, I was confused. I thought we were seeing a country star. I think I got confused with, like, Keith Urban and Carl Urban. <laughs> <laughs> I was just so glad. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> I was yeah, going no. in just like dreading that they were bringing in, you know, like they brought in Simon Pegg for Scotty. I thought they were bringing in some country star to play McCoy. And that's so he funny. was the one I expected to hate. And I'm like, hey, he really pulls it off. And, you know, I, I liked his character a lot. And I'm again, I think I prefer the cases for when they did study it. Now, I don't know how your audiences were. I was at a sold out IMAX show and these people were just I could could tell they were hardcore trekkers because I'm there and I'm watching the movie and I'm enjoying it. But when he goes, I'm a doctor, not a physicist, the crowd applauded. The entire cool. theater went up in uproars. And during the Scotty scene, which we'll talk about later, same thing. And I mean, this audience was eating it up. Just totally. I, sure. I agree with you guys. I thought he did a good job. I thought the only thing I would say, and I feel like I'm falling into a role of negativity here. I'm not trying to be, but I just feel like I, to me, this movie didn't earn its potential. It was fine, but it didn't 
Turner's potential. And with with Bones, I don't feel like he had a whole lot to do. And it's a very broad take on him. Whereas the other people weren't studying. We talked about how the other people uh, weren't emulating their past. To see someone kind of directly emulating next to people that hadn't done their homework, it, it felt, I don't know, it felt, it felt weird. But uh, we'll see how it progresses. Well, r- going from that, I think a great place to go if not doing homework would be Uhura. Oh, and wow. Yeah. Why don't we go right there? I thought she was hot. I thought she was sexy. And I did not get Nichelle Nichols. <laughs> that came, started coming about down a bad roll. A bad <laughs> road there. Um, <laughs> um, she, you haven't, she hasn't played for a captive audience with you, I guess. <laughs> well, you know, I'll, I would love, let's put it this way. If Zoe Salanda, uh, uh, Saldana, whatever her name is, did a fan dance for us, I don't think we'd mind. She, I think the Uhura in this movie was different than we've ever seen before. And talk about giving people something to do, a character who's a thankless role. They gave her a lot to do in this movie, and I think she played it wonderfully. I think the character was so, I think, I mean, I, from my experience with the character, it's so bland. To give her all the stuff they gave her in this movie was wonderful, and I thought the actress was fantastic in it. On top of just looking pretty, she played it great. I thought it was a great Uhura, but not what I think of when I think of Uhura, except for the little ear thing. Thank goodness they kept that in. I've been watching old Trek episodes, and you know what? I'm surprised. After watching this movie, I happened to watch an episode called The Man Trap, and okay. I couldn't believe how similar the Uhuras were. No kidding, because really? it has Uhura flirting with Spock and being all sexy and cute, and I'm like, wow, Nichelle Nichols was hot. <laughs> I bet she was. <laughs> I didn't get that ever, and I'm watching this movie, and I'm like, wow, you know, if she'd done the fan dance in the 60s, I'd be in the front row. And yeah. so I don't think she studied the old Uhura at all, but I liked her character, but in watching the old ones, I was surprised how well they matched up, and I, again, go back to the writers, not the actress. The mm-hmm. writers looked at how Uhura was in the series, and she was a sexy, confident woman who flirted with Spock, and they took that and went with it. Well, the confidence yeah. thing, I agree with you. I, I, I knew that about Uhura, but, you know, this is basically, I guess my comment comes down to, I have not watched enough classic Trek, and I guess I was undereducated in it, but I like, I'm liking what I'm hearing you say. That's fantastic to hear. I want to point out that the characterizations I'm talking about were very early in season one, and I think that as characters fleshed out, the whole Spock romance thing shifted to Nurse Chapel, which is, you got to admit, in the 60s, less racy than a black woman and a white man, even if it's a white man and... No pun intended, right? <laughs> less racy? Yes. Oh, no, I didn't mean that. <laughs> but, you know, back then, that was a much bigger deal than that, is what I'm saying. Uh, well, so... absolutely. I mean, even though it was Roddenberry and hippies and all of that, it was... I imagine quite a thing to even feature a a black woman in space that that they had to relegate her essentially to secretary was a concession for the 60s that they do not have to do in this decade obviously right of course yeah so they they gave Spock a different love interest of Nurse Chapel who was who had a mention in this movie I don't know if you guys caught it at one point McCoy just yells to Chapel but we never see her oh I didn't catch it although I have to say the one thing and you know you guys asked me about the trekker in me when she said she was a linguist and she do all these foreign tongues. I'm like, then why do you need the books to translate the Klingon? <laughs> Star Trek Six. <VI. laughs> 
I've always been rooting for the secondary characters to have a point, and this she's very much a star in this movie. It's Absolutely. not it's not a supporting role. She's central to it. Admittedly, in some ways, she's a pawn, but she is part of the rivalry between Kirk and Spock because they both dig her, and she is her own woman. She is not endeared to either one of them exclusively. But the, I like the relationship she had with Spock. I thought mm-hmm. it, that was interesting. It did make her have a whole new dimension that never came through in the movies. And yeah, when she flirted with uh, Scotty in Trek 5, it was ghastly, but right. when she's trying to <laughs> have Spock be emotional with her and vulnerable, I thought that worked. I agree with you completely. I thought it was a better and more interestingly uh, revealed relationship than the one between Kirk and Spock. The relationship between Kirk and Spock remained schematic. Well, it was I essential under- to the plot. That was the entire I, of the yes. movie. Yes. I understood it on paper why Kirk and Spock have this battle, but between Uhura and Spock, I genuinely felt something. I, you know, and I think part of the reason I, I didn't mind the differences in this Spock from Nimoy's Spock is also because of the scenes with Uhura that maybe maybe I'm giving the actor too much credit here, uh, Zachary Quinto, but I thought because he was a more emotional Spock, he was able to have a relationship with Uhura. And, it, and that take on Spock was different enough that that whole thing really worked well with Uhura. So I loved her in this movie. I thought it was a great take on the role. And I'm glad in my mind when I was watching it, I was so happy with that one character that it went a little so much different than I'm used to. And I thought that was a really great choice because it get, finally gives her something to do besides, you know, answer hails. So it was really great. And I thought she was great. And I loved how she kept on coming back all throughout the movie. She wasn't just on the ship like Sulu and Chekhov were. She actually, you know, had a history and it was great. It was so much fun to keep running into that character because she was so much fun to listen to and, and to see how she'd play off Pine. I thought it was great. Have we ever heard her first name mentioned before? I'm sure we must have, right? But they, they used, they played with that. The fact that Kirk can never get her first name. Yes, and I was like, you know what? I don't know what it is either. I think it's been in books only. I don't mm, think it's uh, ever been in an episode. Mm, I see. But I, I could be wrong on that. I'm just really relieved that they tr- tricked me because in the trailers, you see Kirk asking Uhura for her first name. And then in the trailer, you see Kirk kind of getting it on. And then we get to the movie and you, you see a silhouette of the woman who Kirk's going with. Mm-hmm. And in the movie, it comes. And I really think it's Uhura in that bed. I completely oh, yeah. think it's Uhura. And they fooled me. I've thought it since the trailer that I'm like, Kirk and Uhura hooked up? Whoa. And no, it's a green slave girl. And that was yeah. like the greatest punchline ever. Yeah. We, I guess there's not much to say about the next three, although they did okay. Sulu. Now, everybody may know him as the guy from Harold e. Kumar. I know this guy as the MILF guy from American Pie because that's where I've seen him the most. I, I've only seen, like, Harold and Kumar a half of a time. And I know this guy as this one-note character from American Pie whose entire purpose in the movie is to introduce the audience to the term MILF, which is, you know, mother I'd like to be friends with. And I just still... Still, I, I'm glad that I didn't think it the whole movie, but I saw him on screen. I went, oh, it's the MILF guy. See, I thought Harold, but I hear your point. Uh, he looks and like I, Harold. He talks like Harold. And I thought his one scene, he was great. I and think a different haircut would have helped. Really? I thought. I, I, I don't thought, know. I'm partial to old Sulu. I didn't think he was great. Well, look, Sulu is, you know, some, there's something about George Takai's Sulu that this guy did not get. But mm-hmm. can you tell me what it is? Because no, George Takai embodies quality. exactly yeah. my point. Exactly my point. 
point. It's so, an ephemeral quality. Takai has a quality that makes you want to pay attention to him. It became very apparent when he uh, start, became captain of the Excelsior that mm-hmm. this guy had star quality. I don't know. This, uh, I felt like, I hate to say it this way, but I felt like, what, what is the Asian actor that young people are most familiar with? Oh, we'll get Harold from the Kumar films. I mean, that's more a sad statement of where, you know, Chinese and Asian actors, J- Japanese actors are uh, in this country as far as being stars. We don't have he might be many. Korean. Is he Korean or is he Chinese? Well, you know what? Here's the thing. He is a different type of Asian than Sulu because yeah. he actually didn't want to take the role at first and he talked to George Takai and George Takai said, it doesn't matter. I represented all Asians back then and now you go do the same. How right. nice. How nice. I thought his one scene with the parking brake thing was funny. It was cute. But his big scene with the sword, he kicked ass and it was great and I had so much fun watching that scene and Sulu kicked ass. Can I ask you guys a question? Yes. Was, did you guys have like the shaky cam? I saw this in IMAX and sometimes IMAX is not the preferred method for viewing things. I couldn't see during this fight. I'm like, Kirk is over here fighting one Romulan and Sulu's over here with a sword and I'm like twisting my head and it's shaky and I, I'm getting motion sick. Was it like this for you guys or was this a flaw of the IMAX experience? One of the things I had a problem with this is what's nouveau and what's cool nowadays in movies with action sequences is the extreme cuts and the shaky cam and although I had a lot of fun with that kicking ass of Sulu when he did the twist the Darth Maul twist and stuff like that a lot of times in this movie it was over edited with the fights instead of watching the punches land they cut before they did and you see the guy fall back yada 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 and then the shaky cam I agree with you on that scene I thought they did it on purpose because of the drill was shaking and things like that but it certainly was bad at parts in times that I couldn't help but notice oh my god this stupid cam won't not stop would not stop shaking but yes it was exactly it was the style they're going forward is now the I guess the norm it's that kind of style nowadays that drives me nuts we talked about Star Trek Nemesis we had that uh, when we talked about the Black Hawk Down technique they were using back then and that has faded out hopefully soon keep the camera still will come back into fashion and showing us an action scene blow for blow like a Jackie Chan movie would be really nice to see but regardless I was able to follow most of the action in Arnie not as I didn't have as bad an experience with you maybe the IMAX uh, made it worse but I certainly you were 100% correct they could not keep that camera still because all right, and the reason I tie this back to Sulu is I think that scene could have been kick ass if I could have followed it I understand your point yeah you think the possibility might have been that he wasn't a very skilled fighter and that they had to edit around it that's what it I was suspect. a stunt double it was a stunt right, double right yeah. it, so it, they, it, it totally like they had cast someone that didn't really have the physicality to do the scene that his big scene so they added it around it and uh, that's what it felt like to me. I found the fencing to be a stretch. I mean, yes, there is the famous shot of George Takai, topless and oiled, running around the Enterprise with a sword from an episode where he was basically drunk on some space slug. <laughs> but, I mean, they took that one thing. He's like, well, Sulu's a fencer. Let's write it in somehow. And I'm like, how's he even getting a sword? And then they have, like, the lightsaber-type sword that assembles cool. itself. And then everybody else had swords, too, or axes. <laughs> so I was like, huh? <laughs> Shoot I him. Thought that was, I thought that was a gun. I thought their gun was so long he used it as a sword. No, it was an axe of some sort. I thought. Oh, because they used it to shoot later. They used to shoot those big things to shoot down the, the drill. I think that was something different. Yeah, I thought it? that was a different gun. One guy uh, had a pop-out axe. That's all I can tell you. <laughs> he yes, was like, okay. okay, I came part to party. Whatever you got, I can match. <laughs> 
right. Maybe it's like the Klingons and they had that big sword on them at all times. Who knows? I just I would have preferred a different type of uh, of of action set piece rather than you know if you're gonna do it, do it all the way. Take Kumar or Harold or whichever one he is and oil him up and take his shirt off and let him run around with the sword. Um, I don't think what, that would have worked. <laughs> no, I don't think so either. While we're on this scene, really quick, which is talk about how funny it was that of the three people who who went down to that drill, the guy who got killed was wearing red. Was wearing red. And I think that was so intentional, don't you? I had Absolutely. to Absolutely. And it, yes. it goes back to what I said to my wife one time. You've got, you know, Kirk, Sulu, and unnamed guy wearing red beamed down to the planet. Which one dies? And mm-hmm. I didn't see it coming because nope. I'm like, who's that guy going with him? I don't know him. And then he dies and I'm like, oh, you got me. Yep. Oh, I, really? I just, you were fooled had, by that? that I what, thought that was an in- I thought that was obvious. I thought that was well, an obvious set. They had Ch- Chekhov following the three different colors on the board. And when we saw the, th- the three dots, multicolored dots, it occurred to me then. And I'm like, oh, they're going to go here, aren't they? And because they made this guy, and that guy, the actor, is the uh, British actor from the show Trust Me on TNT. I don't know his name. And he played this pompous jerk guy, so you don't care if he died. It was brilliantly set up, and it was totally a J.J. Abrams kind of thing. And the writers had a lot of fun with that character, and they had to do it, and he wore red, and it was it was just really fun. But I'm glad they, I'm really glad they did that. What George Takai has, though, is a voice like Velvet. Mm-hmm. And you needed that. You needed that, you know, that confident, suave Asian. You didn't need the, I forgot to take off the parking brake. But he's a, he's a kid. He's not, it's, it's, it's the precursor. You were complaining before about, you know, Kirk and his progression. Well, this is, they're writing the character. He's very, very young at this. So he's not there yet. Whereas Kirk has that confident swagger with that quality to him that makes him captain material. Sulu isn't there yet at this point in his career. I think that's where they're going with that character. Same with Chekhov. It's exactly where they're going with those two. All right, well, let's talk about Chekhov. Um, I'm done. <laughs> well, they, the one thing everyone knows about Chekhov is he has that accent. So what do they yeah, do? They make it, they make it they a had. joke. The nuclear yeah, vessels. Yeah. And it was really funny that the computer couldn't understand him. And then the whole time they gave him that speech, the joke was the accent. What they, what I love they did about Chekhov is beyond that accent thing, they gave him that whole thing with the transporter thing. And it also added weight to Spock's mom's death later on. But they gave him something to frickin' do with that transporter thing. Like, you know, and I thought that was a brilliant move. I can do this. I can do this. And he does it. And he, and he comes through. And how many times have we seen Chekhov in all these other movies do nothing? So he actually gets to do something and show his worth and why he's there. And somewhere Walter Koenig is crying. I never got to do that. <laughs> exactly. And the checkoff didn't get hurt this time. You know, he didn't fall down. Mm. So <laughs> I, I really, here, let me say two things and put it out there. First of all, I think it should have been Scotty doing the transporter thing. I never saw yes. Chekhov as the transporter that guy. That didn't make any sense. But anyway, yes. And second of all, I don't think Chekhov should have been there. I'm going to go there. I don't think you needed Chekhov. Chekhov Chekhov was too young. Chekhov was supposed to be the youngest member of the Enterprise crew when the Enterprise had been out a few years, you know? I don't think Chekhov was necessary. And by putting him there, I think it kind of weakened things. It cluttered things. You could have just made, you know, episode two, the introduction of Chekhov, you know? (laughs) Something like that. He didn't need to be there. And yeah, he had the accent. And obviously, this is another one of the actors, I think obviously, that studied what Walter Koenig had done with the character and tried to impersonate it, but with the curly hair, I mean, was this Chekhov a ginger? <laughs> I, I, I couldn't quite get 
the color of his hair. He looked nothing like Walter Koenig. He didn't look like Chekhov at all with that curly mop top. And the only thing that made him Chekhov was the fact that he pronounced V's as W's. So I I think we could have done without Chekhov in this one. And I wouldn't have wept. I get you. I get your point completely. And I don't have much to say about the actor or the characterization because for me it was the voice. And they gave the character something to do. But the I mean, maybe it's a credit to the actor that he made it look so easy that, you know, I'm not really thinking about his performance, but of all the characters, you know, in the comparison thing we're doing right now, I got nothing to say because it's all about the voice. So let's move on to the last one. And, and, and this links in perfectly because I think if they had too much Scotty in this movie, it would have been a mistake. I think the way they used Scotty was perfect. Now, whether Scotty should have done the transporter beam or not is a very good point. But the fact that they brought him in so late in the movie and they had him do all the stuff he needed to do for us, the fans, they used him as comic relief completely. That's why they have Simon Pegg do it. But if they had too much of that in the beginning of this movie, it would have put the wrong tone to this movie and what they were trying to do for this movie. So I'm really happy they didn't have Scotty on the Enterprise until the end. Very happy because of the characterization they did for this guy here was spot on for me, but it was almost too much in the small scenes he was in. I'm a Simon Pegg fan. He is one of my favorite actors. I will see anything he is in. Anything. He's earned it. He has earned it. you know, even bad movies he's in, like How to Lose Friends and Alienate People, are made better by him. And I'm such a fan. And I, you know, I got into this movie, but during the transporter scene or any time engineering was mentioned, I'm like, where's Scotty? We have not seen Scotty. I know he's in here. I bought the damn action figure. Where's Scotty? And so by the time we're introduced to him, I I almost felt it was too late. I think that the transporter scene would have been a tremendous introduction for Scotty. If he was the one running up, I can do this. And this is how Scotty proved himself. Instead, how they did it, he was definitely comic relief. I I liked him and I liked that little alien sidekick he had. That thing was hysterical. (laughs) And, And creepy, too, with those eyes that, like, poked out. But again, I told you guys, the audience I was with, when Scotty's running around engineering, I'm doing the fact that I can't. They were, like, screaming with hysterics. And I'm like, yeah, he did it really well. And I like Simon Begg, and I like him as Scotty, and I hope there's more of him in the next one. I felt like, you know, it was almost by the time it happened, I was like, oh, God, I wish there was more of this. No, you don't go with that impulse. You don't go with that impulse of more of him. It was sparingly. It's like what they did with Stifler in American Pie. First one, he's the best character. Second one, he's in every scene. I want to kill him. (laughs) The Spicoli factor. As it is, when he shows up, it's almost too much for me by the end of it because I'm like, he's so stolen the movie from everybody else. I do agree he should have been at the transporter beam. I don't like the way that he's introduced. I think it's very befuddling. I hope someone can illuminate. Why is he on this ice station? Why is he being punished for having come up with this theory about warp and transport? It didn't really make any sense, but I understand that they wanted to bring him in late. I think that's another one of those scenes that's missing. Yes. It it happens so fast. It's like we are having a moment between Kirk and old Spock, Spock Prime, whatever he's called, original Spock, Spock Classic. And then, like, suddenly it's like they just like, oh, let's walk over here to the station. Oh, and now here's Scotty. And he's going to beam us back to where we started so we can continue the movie now. Huh? Okay. Scotty being on that Hoth planet was completely plot-induced. It had to be there for the plot because the plot they wanted to tell was Kirk meet the old Spock. Spock gets 
gives them the backstory of what the hell is going on, and then they need to find a way to get Kirk back on the Enterprise. So who's who's better to do that than Scott, Montgomery Scott? So that's how they introduced Scotty. It was an introduction that shows how amazingly clever the man is and how he can do things that no one else can, of course. Nimoy broke, you know, some rules there by telling him, you know, how he invents it later in life, but he's he is the guy who does invent it. But the point is that I think, as I said earlier, the less Scotty in this movie, the better, because he's so funny and so great. You're absolutely right. He stole every scene he was in. But the way they used Scotty in this movie was, I thought, really great for the character of Scotty to bring him and Kirk to the Enterprise, because otherwise it would not have been believable that incredible leap that you have to have him jump back to the Enterprise when he was banished from the Enterprise, because they had to have that plot point of Kirk finding old Spock. The way Scotty was introduced was good for the plot, for the movie, to make it make sense, because if anyone else did that, it would have seemed completely false to me as a movie watcher. And Simon Pegg went for the funny accent and the great stuff that we all love about Scotty, but I'm not a Scotty expert, but I remember Star Trek 2, and not only did Scotty come off as fun and had a great sense of humor, he came off as so serious and knowledgeable about his job, you know? And that's the one aspect here that the only time we got to see Scotty with was when he transported Kirk and people back, or when, when, he, when he was explaining how he got gypped. It seemed that, you know, he's really, really smart, but we're not seeing him in action all that much until that one scene at the end. But what makes Scotty great is he's able to do all these great things that no one else can do. And all we got here was comic relief, which is fine. He was, it was perfect for this movie for that. And next movie, maybe we'll see a more substantial Scotty as an addition to having funny lines. That's exactly what I was thinking. When I said I wanted more Scotty, that doesn't mean I wanted more of Simon Pegg being, you know, Jar Jar and being funny in every scene, drawing <laughs> everyone's attention. I wanted to see Simon Pegg do what I know Simon Pegg can do, which is act. And I'll call out Shaun of the Dead as a perfect example of where Simon Pegg can be just laugh out loud funny one moment and tear jerkingly serious the next. I wanted to see that other side of Scotty as well. And that's why I wanted more of him is to kind of balance it because the, the scene where he's in the water pipes and going through, that was stupid. Why was that there? That was uh-huh. not driving the plot. It was it was an action piece for an action piece. And yeah, sure. I don't even understand why Scotty went with Kirk, to be honest. <laughs> Couldn't Scotty have stayed behind him, beamed Kirk on board? It is a contrivance and it's yeah. one that you must allow if you want to see this movie coalesce. Exactly. Right. That's a, that's but, a mulligan. It's a mulligan. Uh, you guys are way too forgiving with your mulligans. I have a lot I of reason. forgive this movie of the mulligans. <laughs> I got a lot of mulligans. I, All right. The movie is... is Death by mulligan. No, a mulligan is a forgiveness, though. A mulligan is something you give it. Otherwise, it's a problem. There's a difference between a mulligan and a problem. When mm. Brock says it's a mulligan, he goes, I'm going to let it go. But I'm not willing to let it go. Well, I guess I felt like there, there. you're right. There were so many that you had to give for this movie. And the movie's so eager to please, I can see the need to want to go there and do it. But at the end, I was stunned that I couldn't go there with this movie because it had just, to me, you said it had earned it i i don't think it had earned it i think it is potential not realized so the movie for me went south when spock jettisoned kirk onto the ice planet um okay (laughs) first of all i would like to say loved seeing leonard nimoy in this this had the emotional impact that they thought they were going to have bringing kirk back with generations and did not it was great to see him and he comes at just the right moment uh into the picture to see him however how spock is used Please, someone, and I think this is going to be rooted in this comic book you keep referring to, Arnie. Someone explain to me why the Romulans think Spock is responsible for the blowing of the planet. Because he's not. He is not. 
oh, this so should have been in the movie. I read this comic and thank God I did because what I said earlier in the show is that I felt like they skipped the character scenes and the reasons we should care. One of the things that if I hadn't read this comic, do Stuart, you didn't know. Brock, were you also scratching your head at why Nero is so mad at Spock? It is no, ridiculous. I, it is it is ridiculous. It was making me pissed that I'm like, okay, 20 years later, you're still at the portal waiting for the man to come out so you could kidnap him and blow his planet up in front of him. And all he did was try and help and didn't get there in time. That would be like beating up a fireman on 9-11 day because they didn't save everyone in the building. I mean, it's um, ridic- like, could you be a little more gracious? Okay. He tried. Um, okay. I watched the movie and I got it completely. I'm sure it's fleshed out more in that comic book you keep referring to. But I'm a big fan of, I shouldn't have to read a novelization or a comic book of a movie or a prequel to this movie to have the movie explained. I think the movie should explain it perfectly. So if you didn't get all that from the movie, I see your point in that way. But I understood it. He's a Romulan and he's angry. And when Nimoy explained what happened, I'm like, okay, that's why the guy is angry. I completely got it from the movie. I, whether or not it's justified i don't know but they explain it perfectly well in the movie to me rock i'm gonna accuse you of bias now because you are so forgiving of so many things that it feels to me like you went into this movie wanting to like it and you're doing with this movie what all the listeners of our friday the 13th podcast wished we had done with friday the 13th (laughs) the last one and go it sucks but i'm okay it's great even though it sucks i i I hear what you're saying but this movie explained it with spock explaining to kirk what happened why why? and his whole plan planet blew up his entire planet blew no up. i understand why you'd be angry with that i don't know why you hold leonard nimoy accountable for that and so accountable so blinded by rage that you'd wait decades for him to pop out and then be like ha, i got you i'm like really uh, yeah. 10 years oh, okay. later you just sitting there you haven't like got it under control a little 25 years later yeah 25 the, the only thing well con was the same freaking way why is but it okay con- for con to be that way and not for this guy and i thought a lot about the difference between con and Nero, A, it wasn't just about the death of the wife. That's why he wanted to get Kirk, but he had grander ambitions. There was something more for him. The Genesis device opens up a whole world that of, of power and control and feeding into a superiority complex that makes him fascinating. And just his rivalry with Kirk is just icing on top of that. Here, we're expected to believe this is a regular Joe who goes around the universe mining, sees his planet blows up, and is, is so angry that he's going to once he figures out he's traveled back in time which is just by the way an accident like it just oh we just accidentally went in here into this portal now we're going to hatch this I mean really like this whole thing just feels misguided this guy isn't a bad guy enough he isn't a bad guy enough he's just blinded by rage to a point that's absurd I will agree with you he's a very one dimensional villain he's kind of like you know angry for angry's sake and I felt Eric Bannon did a great job with what he had but there wasn't much there for that character Character. And a lesser actor probably would have come off like a real two-dimensional villain like the guy in, in Nemesis. The way I understood it, and I'll try to explain it better, is that the planet was promised by Spock, who had this idea how to do it, how to save everything. And Spock was the face of this idea to save the planet. And Spock failed for whatever reason, and therefore the only person that this guy could blame is the face of the project, and that is why. And over time, 
I guess it just he went nuts because he had no. I mean, I don't. Maybe that blank yeah. certainly could have been filled of why he's so pissed off for twenty five years and why he keeps building and building and building. But why he's angry, the initial aspect of it and what the deal is, I caught completely. Is it completely justified in the movie? No. Is it explained why he should be? Yes. If you're asking for a more character filled moment to really give us and hit it home, why this guy is so pissed off at Spock, I concede. But he, the 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 reasoning is all laid out in the movie and you either have to say oh okay or you have to say I want to see that and that's what you're saying so I just want to say I would like to offer for you an alternate reality of where this movie could go how about if Spock actually did blow up this planet if he had to through his logical means the needs of the many outweighing the few had Mm. to say in order for whatever reason these people on this planet are going to have to die in order to save the universe and he really owned that how about if they did that then the stakes would make sense. But as is, you're killing the messenger. It really seems stupid. That's like wanting Sulu to be the murderer in Six. You're not going to make Spock <laughs> I'm always pushing for that. It's called drama, people. <laughs> it's, there's also something called being true to character and not. You know, Spock would sacrifice himself. Spock wouldn't sacrifice a planet. But I'm surprised To that- save the universe? If the stakes were that big, really? Come on. He wasn't to save the universe. He, wanted, he was trying to... Wasn't he trying to I'm save the planet? I'm saying they created that as stakes. No, no. I'm no I, don't, I know what they created. They created a, a, a scenario that isn't interesting. I'm talking about what if they had made it interesting. I'm surprised that Brock got from, you know, Stuart, you keep saying in that three minutes. Well, there was also just that three minute montage mind meld. I'm surprised that Brock got out of it that Spock was the face of Vulcan because I didn't get that. I got that Spock was flying the ship and that Spock was trying to get there. Spock came up with the idea. Spock came up with the idea of how to save the planet. It was all Spock's idea. He was the face. He was the guy. He was the guy who says, I have it. I can do it. I can help you out. I'm the guy. I can do it. Now, let me tell you about this comic because I don't think I would have liked this movie as much if I hadn't read this comic. In the comic, it takes place, uh, you know, it's sometime after the last Next Generation movie. Uh, Data is back. He's captain of the Enterprise. And Spock, the last time we saw Spock, he guest starred on two episodes of The Next Generation and he was living on, like, Romulus or something. In part of the underground movement to create peace with the Romulans. He was an ambassador there with the underground so that the Romulans could make peace with the Federation. The comic book picks up on that. And some space anomaly happens, and I can't remember exactly all the technical details, but it's causing this wave that will destroy Romulus, and it will continue. It doesn't have, it has so much energy, it is also going to destroy Vulcan and all these other things. And Spock goes to the Romulan Council, and it's kind of like that scene in Superman, where uh, Jor-El goes to the Council and says, we're all gonna die, and the Council goes, no. Spock goes to them and says, you're all gonna die. The Council doesn't believe them except for Nero, a simple miner who's like, you know, maybe we should hear Spock out on this. And Nero and Spock form a close friendship and they are working together. And Nero disobeys the Romulan Council and says, You can have my mining ship and my mining crew to help you with what you need, but we need this red matter. And the Vulcans own the red matter. I don't know, you know, red matter, whatever. But they had to go to the Vulcan Council to get the red matter. And they go to the Vulcan Council, and the Vulcan Council is a bunch of dicks. They don't trust. Spock because he's been living with the Romulans they don't give him the red matter saying you know we, it's not logical whatever and so the Romulans 
all die because the Vulcans wouldn't give Spock the red matter. And Spock had been saying to Nero, trust me, and your wife and baby will be fine and everything. And Nero feels personally betrayed by Spock because Spock couldn't convince the Vulcans. And only after Romulus is destroyed does the Vulcans finally come around and go, okay, Spock, here's the red matter. Go do what you got to do. Which explains his anger towards all of Vulcan and wanting Vulcan, the planet, to be destroyed as well. Well, in the movie, the reason he wants the Vulcan to be destroyed is because, as they flat out say, I want Spock to have the same pain that I've had uh, for 25 years of being, you know, one of the only surviving Romulans. Now Spock will have that same fate. And that is in the movie. Now, what you're saying certainly does add a lot of depth and weight to it. But in the movie version of what we're really talking about here, that's the reasoning behind why and destroy Vulcan. And is it weak? Is it thin? It's thinner. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's it's you're right. There certainly could be some more fleshing out, but it's all explained if whether or not you go with it is you know but you know what i don't go with it because he wants spock to witness it but spock's on that ice world you know he's on hoth or rigel or whatever the hell that is and you know it, i would have believed it more nero captured spock's ship why isn't spock nero's captive how did spock get off is that ever explained why is well, Nero put him on the planet? Did he Nero that, put that him on the planet? Like the be- that's like a box seat at a theater, Arnie. Like you, like you get to see it whether you want to or not. You're just right. you're looking down. It, right isn't the at best it. place? Like you know, Princess Leia in Star Wars, looking right at the view screen on the ship that's doing it. Yeah, I wouldn't think that uh, a pl- a planet where there's ice storms would have the best view either. But <laughs> well, um, well, maybe I mean again, I, don't... I had a problem with the whole second act of this movie. I thought that it was contrived, and I agree. As soon as Spock jettisoned Kirk onto an ice planet, oh. I'm like, what in the hell is this movie doing? We need more scenes that are driving this plot forward, and instead, you're sending us on an ice world. And having alien monsters just chase Kirk for the sake of action, that entire point from the point Spock says, get him off the ship, to the point that he gets back on the ship, I am not with this movie. Yes, I like the Nimoy scenes, but other, but it was all just so not where the movie should have gone. I hear you. I think that was a certain a tangent to get to the place they wanted to get to to tell the story they wanted to tell. They define that as a contrivance. I so, disagree. Yeah. yeah, I disagree because you're saying this is something they had to do to tell the story they wanted to tell. Both they didn't have to do this to tell the story they wanted to tell. They did this to, to give the action scenes they wanted to give. It, it did not serve the story. It didn't serve the story. They needed about- to create a scene in which Kirk could be with Spock, Old Spock. and that he could plant the seeds to uh, the start friendship the friendship between Spock and Kirk. Thank you, Stuart. Yeah, exactly the point. Your point about the monster, the polar bear chasing after Kirk, legitimate. They added an action sequence in there to make it interesting for you before we found Spock. Fine, you have that point. The reason Kirk's on that old that Hoth planet to begin with is so he meets old Spock, so he learns that oh my God, me and Spock are friends. Oh my God, I knew my father in that previous history. All, all that stuff that Kirk needs to hear from old spock that's how it had to happen that's why it's there couldn't you have told it in a way that propelled the story forward in an addition rather than putting the pause button on it it's an exposition basically so the exposition scenes are always difficult to do that i i see your point there too for example what if uh you know what if scotty always was on the ship and scotty did the transporter beam and instead of marooning kirk on an ice world where he's likely to die you set him out in like an ejection pod with a with a life beacon so some other ship will come pick him up but then spock comes along in his ship and picks up kirk because it would help to explain why spock is not being tortured by nero the way pike is it would give them their moment alone and do all sorts of things that currently don't happen 
Um, I agree. So okay. much easier. Um, it's, it's easier that way. I think young Spock put him on that planet because there was a Starfleet outpost 14 kilometers from the spot he was put down in. And the pod says, stay in here. Someone from the outpost will pick you up. Kirk does not do that. Um, Spock marooned him there to get him off his ship, but get him safely away. He didn't cast him, didn't banish him to a planet like they couldn't get off of. There was a Starfleet station there to get him off there. What, why Nimoy's Spock is down there? Yeah, I, I see your point there completely. But I thought it was, you know, I could spin it you know mental anguish all that kind of thing but i'm not going to it was he was there for what was needed to have kirk and spock talk so and um, I, I think they also wanted to show that spock could be really vindictive and mean too which they tried to show when it when it has to do with issues involving his mother he gets irrational they try and show that in his introductory scene as a child where he gets into this ridiculous fist fight with other kids who tease him because he has a half human mother so they had to show that quinto was able to uh be petty right. and not logical for me what i was struggling with almost instantly was a very heavy sense of melodrama that this was more melodramatic than Treks that we've seen before, with the exception of, you know, maybe part five or something, <laughs> is that they really, they, they pushed it in a way that I didn't need it to be pushed. Right from the get-go, we have an introductory scene, and it's gorgeous to look at. It's absolutely gorgeous. The visuals in this movie are extraordinary. We've never yes, seen, are. certainly never seen Trek like this. We haven't seen many science fiction movies, really, look this good. It's awesome, which is why I hate to, to dog the scene but it's all built around the premise that Kirk's father is going to die right at the moment that uh, his wife is giving birth to Kirk. Very heavy-handed. And I don't even understand why he had to stay behind with the ship. You're telling me they haven't invented a remote control? That there's no way that he could get in an escape pad and, like... They specifically had a shot saying it's broken. He tried to do it, and it was broken. He's firing all of the phasers himself, running around, firing all of this and piling it in and ramming it. And with the expectation that Nero's ship is not going to notice all the little escape pods and then blow them up afterwards. No, he, he rammed the ship. He manually had to put the ship in as he explained it. He rammed the ship into Nero's ship because that would disable Nero's ship from shooting upon the escape pods. No, no, pods. no, I get and that. And also, I get that, but Kirk's dad was shooting the torpedoes that Nero was firing at the escape pods. He was shooting down, you know, like anti-missile. Oh, uh, okay. I didn't right. get that. But yeah, I'm like, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't preclude for certainty that all these people are going to get away just because you do this. To me, it was a high risk to say, I'm going to stay behind and do this. It doesn't ensure that my wife and child are going to be safe. But it gives them uh, a much better chance of survival. If you didn't do it, they wouldn't survive at all. Fine. That's why he Got did it. it. Right. I just felt like, really, did you guys not have a problem with like that first scene of just being like, oh, please, she's like literally going into labor as they're pushing her to the escape pod? No. No okay. Um to have them do that detract to me just felt like I don't know, I'm too I'm too old for this or something. It just was Okay, Danny Glover. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, let me just say, there was one problem I did have, and that's that his wife was on the ship. Because yeah, in Old Trek, the families weren't on the ship. It was like a submarine. You know, it was specifically said, you leave your families behind and all that. I guess I did have a problem. I was like, why is the wife on the ship? The ship, you know, shouldn't have that. But other than that fact, I had no problem with it. I love the exchange about where we're going to name him Tiberius. That's, come on, we can't, that was really funny. They played with that a little bit. I hear your point. It is melodramatic. Absolutely. I guess I like that Kirk was born of fire. 
You know, it makes him epic. It makes him mythological. I like that. Yes, they were definitely playing into that kind of myth-making melodrama. Another case in point. All right, uh, Spock's mother died. Like, they're beaming them all off, but she's standing on the precipice, and it breaks just as she's being beamed away. Really? I mean, really? Are you serious? That was a great moment, because that was the moment I realized they weren't going to fix it. I'm like, how? they just killed Spock's mom. But But you knew that was coming. That was telegraph. I didn't get it. before he beamed down she was gonna die i did and not I knew know. nothing about this plot. i did not know and i was sitting here watching and i'm like but she was in the series she was even in the fourth movie how could they change oh, that oh that's why you didn't think she was going to die i see see to someone to me the newbie i'm like well this is obviously they're going to kill her so that spot can be all grieving and, and sour because what's she going to do on the ship anyway i mean they blew up vulcan they've never done that before well, that so was they were the fact, and i kept thinking they were going to save vulcan and come on there's time oh. travel i didn't <laughs> How interesting. I yes. thought that they were going to go back and fix it. Well, that's what I thought, too. I, but that, Which is why I'm like, well, of course you can kill the mom and blow up the plant and do whatever else you want because we have time travel now and we'll just go back and fix it. I wonder how many people saw Vulcan implode and felt it in their stomach because that was their own 40 years of Trek imploding. Because it Ouch. was at that moment that it, it there's no going back. There is no planet Vulcan. None of the things we ever saw on Vulcan happened. None of the Vulcans we ever saw happened. I mean, that was such a big moment for me to sit there and go, they really did it. And I kept wondering, well, they're playing with time travel. Are they going to travel back further in time and fix it? And they didn't. And I'm like, wow. Yeah, I I was predicting all of that. That's why it didn't have a lot of emotional impact. I was like, they'll just go back and change it. And it really it didn't occur to me until the end or really till Spock uh, speech with Spock that they were really going to be okay with uh, creating this alternate reality. You know, Stuart, all the things you just said, I I hear your point, but I politely disagree a little bit in that I love that everything they did this time is a game changer. The whole purpose of this movie is to game change it, is to get Trek ready to go in the 21st century for a whole new batch of audience but to be honorable to the old Trek and to blow up Vulcan and have the consequences of it's for real this time, we're not going to play with time again, is what makes this movie wonderful. To make this movie into a summer movie, to make it more accessible to the masses is exactly the point of this reboot and they succeeded in that so your complaints about it being a big summer action movie, blow up, blow up, blow up, I'm too old I hear you buddy, but that's the point and for me it worked. No, I get that. And I just, for me, it's not my taste. I And it's ironic because I think in the early podcast, you would hear me saying, oh, Trek's too cerebral. It doesn't yes. move. It's so stiff. And I felt like all the criticism I had been lobbing at it was just thrown back in my face watching this movie. I'm like, aha, that's why you don't do this all the time. That's why you don't have to have a fight scene in every scene. I mean, I really got exhausted by this movie. Can't we have some quiet character moments occasionally? Does everything have to be hanging, o- dangling off the edge of a cliff? I well, mean, Really? In the elevator, the elevator scene between you, her, and, Sp- and Spock was a nice quiet moment. <laughs> 45 seconds of it. That, okay. And that's my point, too, is that they would be tender moments if you linger. They're not tender moments if you dice them up. The whole scene with Kirk in the car, the young kid Kirk in the car, I thought that was okay. I didn't really need to have that. If you want to talk about scenes of cut in the movie, I, I think I understand why. You know, they have the, the young Spock scene, the young Kirk scene, and, you know, building up the background of why they are as they are at Starfleet. But that whole thing with the car, I, I didn't really care. It was a great scene in the preview, but since I already had that reveal that it was Kirk in the preview, I didn't need that scene in the movie. 
point. <laughs> I, I just felt I didn't care at that point. The Spock scenes in school, it was fine. Um, I didn't really care. I'm happy they didn't spend too much time with either one of those, you know, young youngsters. The scenes didn't need to be there, but all right, let's talk about the Beastie Boys. I loved right. that scene. I loved it. I loved that song. I loved the action. It was just a fun scene. And you know what? It, it might have. It didn't serve the movie other than to show Kirk is rebellious. The bar fight shows Kirk is rebellious. You didn't exactly. need to see that again. But exactly. my God, was it a fun scene. And now, come on, Brock, complain about the song and complain about the car. I'm waiting. Okay, thank you. I said before one of my big complaints about the movie was the the quick cutting and shaky cam. My other complaint about this movie was the music almost as a whole, um, except for the ending, and I'll talk about this now. But Sabotage, great song, and I'm not going to complain about it. I'm just going to flat out say maybe they also acknowledge the fact that they always use 20th century music and they put it back in this one too. I thought Sabotage was, of all the songs in the world to pick, it's kind of heavy-handed almost in that he who's sabotaging himself was play Sabotage, but a great song and it really worked for the scene. So I said my piece. I've been talking about this for 10 podcasts now, and they do it again in the new one. I feel vindicated. Thank you. The music I felt underneath all the scenes was pretty ho-hum for me. I, I felt too much, again, with the, such heavy percussion and big drums. That's what's in now, and that's fine. I love they used the Star Trek themes at the end of the movie. I thought that was really, really great and about time. I don't want them to use the Star Trek themes throughout the whole movie, but you know, when they did Superman Returns and they had the John Williams theme in there interwoven with the new music, I thought that really worked. Gave you the spirit of it, but wasn't a direct carbon copy. I thought if they didn't use exactly the themes or parts of the themes or hints of the themes for this movie that we know so well, at least give me a, a stronger sense of the music helping the scenes along because I felt the music, it was either not helpful enough or it was too obvious. It, it didn't really help me. I, I just felt the music was too bleh. I really wanted You know what it was? Than. Is that we're used to having um, marches and scores that are like, this is something important happening and in this one, they really didn't create a theme. There is right. no theme until they use the old TV show theme for the end credits. It's right. more kind of what Hans Zimmer did in Dark Knight. It's like moody. It's atmospheric. It doesn't really – you couldn't hum it. <laughs> you, know, you don't come out of there humming the Star Trek theme. It's all burbling kind of underneath. And occasionally, I, I just didn't feel appropriate to me. It felt like this is a score you would use in a pirate movie or something. It's not exactly. really – it's not uh, – I don't know. I didn't, I didn't like it at all. I'm going to disagree with both of you. I bought the CD today. I really liked it. I think it was a theme. Now, I can't hum it for you because I only saw the movie once, but I think that the music they used was perfect, and there was a chorus that they kept going back to during all the big action scenes, and I'll, I'll call it the uh, the Kirk Sr. theme because it first came there, and anytime there's like this big moment and the Enterprise is doing something, there's this musical crescendo that they go to, and it's the same one again and again, and it really instilled action and it instilled grandeur and i thought to myself as i'm watching it i'm like you know this movie's score perhaps it's a little much because i'm thinking about the score and the best scores are ones i don't think about during the movie and i'm listening to the score and i'm like they did some great music here and i want that cd because i think i would enjoy listening to that you know while i'm programming at work or something so i went out i picked up the cd and i want i do think there should have been a few more callbacks to the older music at times i definitely 
absolutely think that that was something missed upon. They they should have done a little more of it than they did, but not a ton. I liked what they did with this music a lot, and I'm so glad that they didn't go back to one of the old composers. This is a new track, this is a new composer, and this is the best movie score I've heard since Pirates of the Caribbean. Now, I'm not yeah. saying I wanted, I wanted to hear do-do-do-do-do-do-do every time Kirk does something heroic, but if they had a new theme that was pretty much like that at certain mm-hmm. moments, in the, and it kind of swept up into it, for this movie, it could have worked. Now, I understand the style of, re- of, of modern-day scores is not that, but here they had an opportunity to, because they're doing an old movie new again, they could have done a little bit in between with the music, and I thought it would have helped the movie more, especially when they have the Star Trek opening you know, title screen. They could have used something more there for me, because at the end, the, what makes the ending so winning is you know they're on the bridge and they break into the you know space, the final frontier, and they have the music you want to hear at the end. How wonderful was that? What a great way to end the movie. If they just gave me a piece of that in the middle somewhere, if not the same theme, a different theme, but some kind of theme, it would have been brilliant. In a way, I felt that ending was ripping off Casino Royale, because it, you know, this movie, How? when it ends, is where, you know, we're now Kirk is at the Enterprise, and this is the moment where like all the episodes would start or something, and so they, you know how all the James Bond movies begin with James Bond, you know, in the reticle, and he shoots the camera, and all that, and the blood, mm-hmm. and Casino Royale ends with that, right? Exactly. And I think Star Trek did the exact same thing. Now that we've seen these characters get to point X, now we're going to give you at the end what all the others, all the episodes began with. And I, Christina Royale was awesome when they did it, and I thought here it worked great. Yeah. I thought it was the right move, regardless if it was a ripoff or not. It was a brilliant move. I'm really glad they never brought back the uh, Next Generation theme or the theme from any of the previous movies. When they brought back the themes, it was the themes from the TV series. And it's good. They've erased history and they need to erase all of it. You know, don't don't call back to something that never happened. Don't call back to the other movies. Don't call back to the other series. I'm glad that, you know, at first in the comic book, that weird ship that's all over the place that Spock flies in the comic that was designed by Jordy LaForge, and I was glad that there were no dropped references to LaForge or anything. You you erased it all, and let's start over. And that means the only music you get to call back to is the music from the old series. Although, what my wife said, I didn't catch this. Apparently, there was a musical callback to the Kirk and Spock fight from the original series when Kirk and Spock are fighting on the bridge. Uh, I didn't catch it. Again, I've only seen the movie once, but apparently they did a few strains of that amok time. I don't know if it was a little or whatever, but there was something there that she caught and she doesn't even know track. But for her to pick up the music is something. Well, what I think a lot of the Trek fans, um, I haven't read their reactions yet, but the, the big hardcore Trekkers, I think they're going to be in a spot here because what this movie does, as you said before, hit the reset button. They completely explain a way how they're going to move on from here and not have to worry about all these other continuity issues. And it's about time that someone came up with the idea of this is how it's going to be from now on. We don't want to hear your complaints because that's what I'm hearing from the, these m- filmmakers is that, yeah, we know what came before, but we explained a way why we don't have to follow it anymore. So either you're going to go with this or not. And here's where we're going to go with this. Abrams has come out and said, you know what? Don't go see this movie if you're going to be upset that I changed things. Don't go. Oh, good for him. Strong move on his part. I think because um, as a you know, I had an idea about this, Arnie. And um, um, let me ask you, if they did this for Star Wars, would you and I be okay with it? (laughs) I would be because I understand that these are entertainment franchises and I'm not a continuity Nazi. I would rather have you tell me an entertaining story than anything. Arnie, you're a continuity Nazi. (laughs) 
You are. We have spent many podcasts with you saying, well, in part six of Friday the 13th, the mask had a tear on this side, and then on the <laughs> seventh, it was underneath. And I was be like, oh, right. So don't tell me that. You go crazy about continuity. But you're, what you're saying, I think, is that you're not, you wouldn't let that interfere with a good story. No, the result they're giving me has to be satisfying. If I am satisfied with the result, I will do anything. I think it works really well for here. If they did it well in Star Wars, I probably would be the same way. I, I think the reason that this really happened with so much of a game changer is there was finally someone with vision in charge because Trek had been controlled by Roddenberry's assistant and just various business people and Paramount for so long. And the directors had either been Trek directors of the past or completely misused. I mean, the sound of music guy. But here you bring in a director with vision. And I think that's good directors are good directors, whatever. And you don't need to adhere to a universe's continuity if you can tell a good story. Here, he said, I'm going to wipe the slate clean. But I think having a man with vision and who could respect it but make a good story out of it is what made the difference here. And that's why I think this is the best Trek movie. It's the one that is singly most satisfying as a science fiction space rock. Okay, it's on. This is nothing compared to Khan. Nothing. This Khan blows this movie out of the water. Khan is a better villain. Yeah, Khan is a better villain and movie. And just because this is shiny and new and has billions of dollars of special effects is never going to overcompensate for the fact that Khan had stakes, likable characters, and real excitement on both a action and a science fiction story of ideas. And this movie did not have ideas. You talk about a vision he had a vision for how to rehab it but there wasn't really a good story here you can't admit that their con has its problems it's a good movie i really like it it's it's the second best trek film now but you know even the action is more suspense than action you know the submarine fight and the spock death yeah it's more emotional and it is more dramatically fulfilling than this film but yes. overall this film is the one that engrosses you more it, it grabs you more this one well it pushes you around a lot more it's in your face i just i can't go with the idea that just because it's the it's the biggest it's the one with the best special effects it's the biggest production that makes it the best and that's what i feel like it has i think that means it has to be more you know what's charming about going back to put to part two to con was that okay technically there were problems and the special effects weren't all there and the plastic con chest and all of that but you know what with that little bit of something they really made something work. Here they had everything, and I feel like it, it was squandered. The difference between comparing this movie to Khan is that this movie also had the quote-unquote burden of the origin story that it was telling. If you think about Spider-Man and Spider-Man 2, Superman and Superman 2, the first movie in, in those franchises have how did they get to be the hero? Batman Begins and Dark Knight, so, which are tremendous movies much better than this one. Okay, but my point is that they had that burden in this movie in that they had to tell that story here. So Khan didn't have to have that in it. So right. the next movie really will be a test of, and now that they set this whole thing up this way, what are they going to do with it? Well, I think it'd be a more fair comparison for the second movie, compare it to Khan, because the Khan also didn't have that burden at all. The first movie had a little bit of that going on, reintroducing the characters and that insanely long sequence introducing the ship, etc. So that's the only thing I wanted to say about your, your theory. I, I hear a lot what you're saying, and you make a lot of great points. 
points. But no, and I, I totally agree with you. I only compare it to Khan because to me, Khan is the best track film, and there's okay. nothing that comes close. This movie to me was a what I put on the same level as uh, three. It's it's kind of search for Spock for me. Ooh. That's funny that you compare the most action-packed Star Trek with the least action-packed Star Trek. Yeah, no, I know. Well, no, I think part one is the least <laughs> well, That's true. That is but, true. Uh, I have to agree on that. But, uh, but yes, I, I don't mean it in terms of tone. I simply mean in terms of my satisfaction level. I was right there in that Trek 3 of like, well, do I like this or not? It's certainly watchable. It's, it's fine entertainment. It's eye candy. It's got people moving around and, and doing things and getting you caught up in it but it just did not have what Khan had it didn't have it and to me that will remain the best Trek movie until you know maybe maybe they can fix it in the sequel I agree but uh, as far as origin stories go I think Casino Royale is a brilliant story I think Batman Begins is a brilliant story I don't think this is a brilliant one I gotta say I, I mean when I say it's the best of the Trek films I'll stand by that to the end of this podcast but it's not a perfect movie and I don't want to say that it is because I do feel that the strong point of Kong is it's you care about the characters and there's emotional impact beyond just explosions and stopping explosions. This movie was lacking that. And I, I still just some part of me believes there must be an extended cut coming that would have more of that. But they just didn't want all the talky talky in the movie. Yep. But it, it's lacking that if if you could combine just a tenth of the characterization and character moments from Kong and put it into this movie, then I would be even happier with this movie than I am. As it is, I like this movie. I like it quite a bit. Khan, my, the reason I put this above Khan, Khan was great with character moments, but that was all it had. And this is all action, but it's all it has. If you could somehow marry the two and produce a perfect offspring, maybe that would be, you know, the messiah of Trek. But I think what you're really saying is that if Khan could look this good, you would love it the best. But because this movie looks so good... Yeah, there's some problems in that movie also with the acting and, you know... We talked about it. We went into detail. And, you know, Khan's was the greatest Trek film. I just think this one surpassed it for me in delivering what I like to see in a movie. I wonder if you'll feel that way in a year, though. I mean, I feel right now the hype, the buildup to this was so huge. I was shocked when I didn't love it. I thought going in, I'm like, oh, this one's going to be great. This one's going to be the best. It's going to make the most money. It's going to look the best. It's going to this. And and honestly, like when you get past the flash and all that, I wonder what all of us will think in a year or two. I'm the same way. I walked into the theater, you know, expecting and partially afraid that I would truly love it and just completely be like, because the early reviews were so so glowing. Yeah. And in fact, one of the reviews I specifically read on MSNBC, the guy said that there were character moments where he had emotions that are usually he only has with independent dramas. And so mm-hmm. I really thought that there were going to be character moments. He, I, I don't know what scene he was talking about having seen this movie. But, you know, I walked in expecting to walk out loving it. I walk out and I say, it is a good film. It is not a great film. I don't love it. I like it. Uh, it is not changing my life. I'm not, you know, going to go out and start costuming as a trekker you know i'm not reverting back to what i was because of it but i can mm-hmm. say it was a solid film that i enjoyed watching and you know the more i think about Khan, the more i i do have love for Khan. but it, it, neck and neck but i still think this one wins out because of the eye candy and the humor and just the overall experience of watching in a, you know what i i don't care you say you feel old i feel young i like modern movies and what modern movies give i like some michael bay stuff i like some mitchy stuff and I don't mind turning my brain off and watching some action for a couple of hours. 
works. And I got to tell you, I've been hearing some of the stuff since I've seen this movie and, and my friends on Facebook and things like that. People really enjoy this movie and I really enjoy this movie. And I thought I didn't even occur to me to compare it to Khan until we started talking about it right here. I can't say if it's the best Star Trek movie for me because I you beat me to it, Stuart. I got to let this ferment. It's, it's such a different kind of Trek movie that I completely acknowledge what it was doing and why it was doing it. But let's see where they go from here to really, you know, for me, the jury's out because of it. They, mm-hmm. it's, it's a game changer, man. It's such a, it's such a big game changer and it's so needed to be a game changer that it, it felt right. It felt comfortable. I had a lot of fun. I could see how it was great for fans and great for newbies alike. And they really did a great job here. So let's end the podcast here, guys. Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend Star Trek? Stuart. Hmm. You know what? It's, it's so difficult for me to say. I really thought that it would be effortless to love this movie. And I struggled the whole movie with, with many, many things. Some of it, my expectations of where the series had gone. Some of it, uh, artistic decisions and artistic license. Some of it just didn't think that they had hit it. I feel, you know what? I'd recommend it if, mm. it's funny, we're entering the age where it's like, I'd recommend it on video <laughs> and yet it won't look good on video. Ugh, I don't know. You know what? I, I, no. The answer, the simple answer is no. That for me, this was not a satisfying movie to watch overall. It was a frustrating movie. It was fine. It was satisfactory. I mean, is when you get a C, how do you feel? <laughs> do you feel like you passed or do you feel like uh, you didn't do a good job? I, I give this movie a C. Arnie. I recommend this film unless you have devoted 40 years of your life to track and just can't deal with it because, you know, you're, you're going to need therapy after this. What did I do? You know? Yeah, I can see how hurtful that would be. It would be. I mean, if it's something that you were loyal to for 40 years, somebody comes along and goes, it wasn't good enough. <laughs> you know, it, it's got to be. Uh, Boom. <laughs> and then, Let's blow up Vulcan. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I, I, I really stand by the fact that I wonder if somebody's insides were sucking in just this mm-hmm. Vulcan was sucking in because that was the moment when I'm like man they didn't just change it you know there's no retcon here there's no well the reason that you know we said this in the old series but it's not like that in the movie is we're gonna make up some bull no it's they they erased everything previous Trekkers like and if you can't deal with that I stand by J.J. Abrams just pop in a DVD and la 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 and cover your hands over your ears whenever somebody talks about this new track the ad says this is not your father star trek and damn right it ain't because this is unlike any track that's ever come before it is a 21st century star trek and i liked it and i recommend it to audiences who enjoy action movies star trek hasn't always been action they they, they turned off the cerebral you know there's no overtones about let's discuss racism and social politics no this is an action movie and i enjoyed it and I, too, recommend this movie. I had a really great time with this movie. To me, it's like the Broadway revival. I think I might have used this in comparison before in other podcasts. If you bring a show back to Broadway that was very successful on Broadway for many years, and 20 years later, you bring it back to Broadway, you have to have an idea of how you're going to tell it differently. There's no point in telling us and giving us the exact same show again, because we've already seen that. So do it, but have something that's different about it that makes it worthwhile to go and see. 
this movie did that. And it didn't betray the musical, didn't betray the old stuff so much that you felt horrible about it. Oh, yes, it, it had, did. <laughs> well, not to me, it didn't. Not to me, <laughs> okay, as the okay. kind of fan I am for Trek, it certainly did not. It had a lot of hints of all the characters, who they were, and they showed a, like, a lot of groundwork of who the characters were and, and the things I love about Trek are all in here. All the great lines and the great character stuff that, you know, the typical, stereotypical Trek stuff is in here. It's just a retelling of some of the stuff which I am going with because I liked it and it and they made it work. And I think the best best thing I could say about this movie and why I liked it so much was, and this is an absolutely true story, the end credits, and I waited for the very last credit because, you know, summer movies have trained me to sit there for the last end of the credits in case there's an extra scene. The last credit was in memory of Gene Roddenberry and Majel Barrett Roddenberry. And that's the last credit in memory of them. And as I was getting up and putting my coat on, behind me is a mother, a father, and a 10-year-old boy, maybe nine years old. And the mother is turned turn to her son and was saying, now, Gene Roddenberry was the man who created Star Trek, and Majel Barrett was his wife, who also did the voice in the computer for the Star Trek series. And watching her do that made me have the biggest grin on my face, because J.J. Abrams has had, had accomplished what he set out to do here. They are introducing Star Trek to the new fans, these 10-year-old kids. But at the same time, the mother and father, who are lifetime Star Trek fans, are coming to enjoy it with him and enjoy the movie for themselves. And that's exactly the point of this movie. And I got to witness that live. And it completely succeeds in that matter. All the details we're talking about here and this and that, you know, we're right. <laughs> you know, we have our points are completely valid. But what they set out to do, they did it. And we'll see what they go from from here. And I'm, and now I can anticipate the next Star Trek movie because of what they gave me this time. So I want to thank you all for joining us for now playing. Now, I want to thank the people who went on the forums and discussed these movies with us throughout this entire podcast series. I want to thank the fans who are listening who gave us reviews on iTunes. Thank you very much for that. If you liked our shows, please go on iTunes and review us there so other people can find us in the future. And speaking of the future, we are going to be starting next week a Terminator retrospective series leading up to McGee's Terminator Salvation. And you can find the Terminator podcast as well as all the previous podcasts here at nowplayingpodcast.com. And the link to our forums and our archive sections as well. So I want to thank you both for joining me for Star Trek. I had a great time doing this series with you guys, and I look forward to the next series where the three of us can get back together and discuss some stuff. Oh, well, I'm sure there'll let's... be a sequel in a couple years. We'll, <laughs> we'll be back. We'll be back. If point. there's a sequel, we'll, I guess we should reconvene and, and talk about it then. Live yep. long and prosper. Dudes. Space. The final frontier. These are the continuing voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Their ongoing mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life forms and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone. Thank you for joining us for this installment of Now Playing's Look Back at all of the films in the Star Trek series. Be sure to come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com every Friday from now until the release of the new movie May 8th for a new installment in our Trek retrospective. Star Trek and all the Star Trek universe contains is copyright and trademark Paramount Pictures, all rights reserved. Now Playing is not affiliated with Paramount Pictures.
Gentlemen, your work today has been outstanding. I tend to recommend you all for promotion in whatever fleet we end up serving. Now Playing is a production of Inganza Media Incorporated, copyright 2009, all rights reserved. Uh, where do you want to start? All right, let's start just by rank. First, uh, Sulu. By rank? Listen to you. <laughs> Dark! <laughs> by rank? I actually, I don't even know if that's right. I, uh, at some point, uh, Scotty may outrank Sulu. But <laughs> with Sorry, Sulu... Sorry, on that one. <laughs> God, you know, every single time I edit one of these things, I have to edit out somebody calling me a dork. Uh, well, that was a funny one. <laughs> Just leave it in, Arnie. Just leave it in. That was a funny one. That was a funny one. All right, go ahead. All right. Sorry.